Well, we're starting back uh, in the series in 1 Corinthians this evening, uh, and, but thankfully, as we launch back in after a pretty big break, uh, you'll see in this letter that it is broken up into little sections that kind of make it easy to slot back into to some degree. Uh, so starting at chapter 8 uh, won't be too hard for reasons I'm about to give you. Uh, You might recall that as Corinthians reaches chapter 7, there's a big change that happens at the beginning of this chapter. Paul uh, tells us, now for the matters which you wrote about. So from this point on, he changes gear and he starts answering a bunch of questions that the Corinthians have brought to his attention. Uh, They effectively have uh, what you could probably call like a, a wish list of questions about how to live as a Christian and probably more importantly, how they're to function together as a church in Corinth, particularly in a place that is filled with drunkenness, a place that is filled with sexual promiscuity, with idol worship, and a whole range of other things that were just bombarding at you uh, as part of everyday life if you were to live here. Uh, Being a church in Corinth was not really an easy feat. And so here's the church debating among themselves about various issues, and in their wisdom, and I think kudos to them for doing this, they decide to ask Paul for some clarity. They, they want his advice, they want his wisdom on a couple of these tricky topics. Now, if you think uh, about uh, newer Christians or younger Christians or even older Christians that just haven't wrestled with some things, it's not unusual uh, to have thousands of questions kind of brimming about in light of every bit of knowledge that you receive when you're reading the Bible. When you have newfound knowledge of who Christ is, what his sacrifice has done for you, uh, it does raise a lot of questions. And this is especially the case for those who've come out of a pretty rough or a complicated history prior to knowing Jesus. In fact, it's really common for people after becoming a Christian to essentially bring all kinds of baggage with them, uh, sensitivities to certain issues that can sometimes take months, uh, years, um, or even longer to overcome, and that's if they're overcome at all. And so here in chapter 8, the Corinthians, well, they bring their next question to Paul, the question of whether or not it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, while it might be easy uh, to breeze over an issue like this one uh, in today's church, uh, it might be easy to not question where James Cashman got his chicken from last week to figure out who, who sold it to him. It never even crossed my mind whether the delicious chicken he'd made was sacrificed to a god or, or not because to some degree it just doesn't concern me at all and I suspect it probably doesn't concern many of us that particular issue. It's not really on our radar. Yet for the Corinthians, uh, this was a pretty huge issue, particularly when it came to the unity of the church. Now, part of the reason for this is that a huge part of their social life, uh, this involved uh, meals where particularly there was some meat on the table whose origins was you didn't know where. In fact, pretty much regardless of where you sourced meat in Corinth, more than likely it had been sacrificed at one point to one of the gods in one of the temples. It was just so commonplace you could barely avoid this stuff. And so the church, if it was to have any Christian witness in Corinth there were really risks involved in what you did in these environments. In fact, even if meat was bought in a marketplace, for example, it was likely to have had its origins in some kind of a temple. And I can explain that later, but essentially there were sacrifices made and then the priests had too much to eat, so they'd offload it onto the markets. So somehow, some way or other, it would always, almost always have some association with a pagan god. Or at the very, very least, 
you just could never be sure. But the other part of the problem here, which is the case uh, for the consciences of some in, in Corinth, was that there were those who came out of practices uh, with other gods and, and idolatry and other things, and they remained superstitious. That is, they, they brought baggage in from their former life and genuinely believed, if you read verse 7, they genuinely believed that, that you were effectively playing Russian roulette with your soul by eating this meat sacrificed to this or that god. Now, Paul says, I can't pull the slides up, there's issues with the connection and all that, so you're just going to keep your Bible open with you. But verse 7 we read, Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. They genuinely believe this. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Right? These are people who genuinely have an issue with eating any meat that was sacrificial in nature, which is basically all the meat in Corinth. And so what you have then uh, at ground zero is this church that they're split down the middle on this debate. You have two primary groups answering this question. So on the one hand, you had this group of people who Paul would call the ones with knowledge. He uses the word knowledge multiple times in the first couple of verses here to refer to this group. And he says these are the people, they, they knew that an idol, as the NIV puts it, uh, is nothing at all in the world. The NIV puts it in inverted commas because they think this is, this is a quote from the Corinthians. They're going, an idol's nothing. In fact, they know even more than this. They know that there is no God but one. So these other gods, they're just they're fake. They don't exist. There's no, nothing to worry about. In fact, an idol is, is just a piece of wood covered in gold, nothing more. And if there's only one God, everything's fine. The pagan gods were effectively no worry to these knowledgeable Christians because they know really, <laughs> ground zero, there's only one true God. So in a nutshell for these guys, in their freedom, they're like, yeah, let's eat of it. Why not? It's no big deal. And besides the barbecue marinade on this meat, gee, it just smells so good. I, I couldn't see myself not eating this stuff. They're free in Christ and they're free to do this. And so from what it seems like here in Corinthians, this first group uh, potentially just wanted to push this knowledge onto everyone, essentially flaunting their freedoms, showing some bravado by walking into the local temple and going, look, I'm going to take a big chunk out of this meat. They're kind of the, the super spiritual ones. They have this kind of secret knowledge about idols and about God and the truth, and this sets them free. And so effectively, they sit down and eat loudly and proudly with no cares in the world. On the other hand, you had this other group of Christians who, for whatever reasons, said, uh-uh, there is no way I'm touching that meat. In fact, I grew up in that temple and I saw some really messed up things there. There is no way you will never, ever, ever have me eating meat that comes from there, ever. And all of a sudden, when you have these two groups... There's a problem on your hands. How do you maintain fellowship and unity? How do you build up God's church when there are two passionate camps who sit either side of an issue as central as eating a meal together? Now, Paul, he could have easily answered their question. Uh, he could have done chapter 8 in one verse like this. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, go for it. You're free in Christ. Next question. You know, you're right, you're wrong, moving on. But he doesn't do this. 
In fact, at the beginning of chapter 8, I'll see if I can pull it up. At the beginning of chapter 8, uh, you'll see Paul raising the question they've asked in verse 1. And instead of answering the question, he rambles on about the dangers of knowledge for three verses, only then to come back to answer the question in verse 4. Right, he feels the need to add a few caveats to their question to really clarify what the deeper issue is here. To put it simply, Paul, he sees their question, he gets it, he knows the answer to the question, but then he sees a greater need in the Corinthian church, and I think in the church in general even today. That is the need for unity, the need to build one another up in love. And so when it comes to the question of, can I do this or can I do that as a Christian? What should be going through our minds is, is this something that will build somebody up or is this something that I'm doing that will tear someone down? Is what I'm doing going to build up or rip apart a brother or sister in Christ? Now, you see later on uh, in 1 Corinthians that, that Paul, he does actually want Christians to eventually come to the point of maturity and knowledge. He himself acknowledges his own freedoms. But while there are still tender consciences within the church's walls, which is basically the church throughout all of history, Paul says that we should gladly restrict our rights if it means building up our brothers and sisters. And so, no, Paul doesn't answer their question about food sacrifice to idols going, you're right, you're wrong, now get on with your lives. Instead, he targets those who are right at least right from a technical standpoint, right? those who have the knowledge that the meat is just that, it's just meat, but then he shows them how they can be so wrong in how they flaunt this knowledge to those with tender consciences. In other words, Paul's showing the Corinthians that they can be right about something but still be completely wrong about it too. It's like knowing that tomato is a fruit, it's right, but you don't add it to your mum's fruit salad. It's wrong. If, if you were to, to go, well, tomatoes are fruit, so let's add it to that fruit smoothie, you're demonstrating that you know nothing at all. Or perhaps you're a gym junkie that loves that kind of weird stuff. I don't know. Paul is saying in verse 2, he says, those who think they know something, i.e. those who, who think uh, they know they can eat meat, they don't yet know as they ought to know. So they have knowledge, but not really. So the warning in verse 1 is, is to not let the knowledge of the truth puff us up. Because knowledge just does that. The more knowledge we gain, the more kind of proud we get because we have some kind of knowledge that others don't have. And so it's very, very prone to making us prideful or arrogant. And in fact, if you were to skip ahead to the, the classic love chapter in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, in verse 2, Paul says that if you have all the knowledge in the world, right? If somehow you could consume all the knowledge and maintain it in there, but you don't have love, you're nothing at all. These Corinthians, the ones that have all the knowledge, it seems as though what they're doing is adding tomato to a fruit salad by the way they act. They still have a lot to learn. In fact, real knowledge, uh, it's about love. And in particular, in verse 3, it's not about us loving God necessarily. It's, it's, it's when we love God, we're known by God. That is true knowledge. True knowledge actually has its essence in how you use that knowledge. 
And all of this, this is Paul's argument from verses 1 to 3, and you'll notice he hasn't even started answering their question because he knows they're so prone to misunderstanding what he's about to say. If he were to say, yeah, go ahead, it'll just inflate their head even more. So what he's doing in verses 1 to 3 is priming the pump before he gives them the answer so that they're ready to receive it in humility. And having set the stage, here is Paul's answer. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. You'll notice if, if you read the NIV translation, they put the little quotation marks around those two. Uh, they, the editors of the NIV, they think these are quotes from the Corinthians, and I, I think they're right about this. They seem to be slogans which justify the Corinthians' reasoning to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. An idol, it's just a piece of wood, and guess what? There's only one God, so even if the meat has been sacrificed, it's all good, it doesn't really matter. And so in verse 5... They continue, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. And that, in some sense, is Paul summarising their, their argument, justifying why they can do this, why they have freedom to do whatever they want. And Paul, he knows this, and he goes on to say, in almost an ironic fashion, he goes, well, look, you have this knowledge, yep, okay, let me give you some more knowledge. Let me, let me fill that in even more for you. It's not just that there is no God but one. It's that there is one God who is, in fact, the Father who created everything and one Lord, Jesus, through whom all things came and through whom we live. When he includes this breakdown of, of the nature of these two members of the Trinity, he's one-upping them at their own game and going, look, you, you have knowledge. Let me add to that. Let me show you the knowledge that I have. Before, right at the end of the passage, he goes on to say, that knowledge doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. I will willingly restrict my right to eat meat if it means loving my brother. So he one-ups them at their knowledge game. But if everything he said is true, the question still remains, like, is he still free? I mean, you're saved by grace, so doesn't that mean we can eat the meat? But it's not quite as simple as that, because Paul, in verse 7 I'm not going to continue with the slides because it's just not working, so keep your Bibles open. In verse 7, he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. That is, in the church, not everyone is on the same page here. Now, I've been a, a Christian my whole life. Um, had the wonderful blessing of being born and raised in a Christian home, but that doesn't prevent me from still bringing incorrect baggage into the church. Uh, whether we've known Jesus or whether we've uh, recently been converted and things that there are things that we know that we think we know that we slowly shed over time as the truth is unpacked in the Bible. Uh, one of the things I always used to say, um, in fact, it's said so frequently, it was said very recently, uh, is where two or more are gathered, there is Jesus in our midst. And it is in the Bible. And I used to say this though to, to give legitimacy to the gathering we have here today. You know, we, we gather together as a church, and I'll open the service by going, Father, where two or more are gathered, you are there in our midst. And it sounds so nice, and it sounds so real. You can pray it in a growth group. You can pray it in a one-to-one, -one, because there's two of you there, and all of a sudden, you're realising oh, how comforting it is that Jesus is there. Until my first year as a student minister, one of our elders humbly took me to the side and said, oh, look, could be wrong, but I think Jesus is saying this in the context of handling conflict in the church. 
He's saying, but when you two are fighting, Jesus is there. Remember that. And he was right. That's the context to that famous verse. And at the time, I didn't have that knowledge, and even after several years in Bible college. And so it was very, very humbling to hear this, that I'd brought something in that actually wasn't true, and it was affecting the way that I was using it. But I think this point is true of many of us. Our thoughts are often shaped by things that sometimes aren't even in the Bible, or they're twisted parts of the Bible that we use incorrectly. A very famous one is, is, is the, the phrase, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's just not in the Bible. And yet countless Christians I know have brought that one in at some point. Especially if they're trying to impart a bit of wisdom to someone. No, God helps those who help themselves. But over time, we, we all grow. We change. And by God's grace, we'll continue to grow. And, and we'll continue to gain a deeper knowledge, a, a richer knowledge of God and his grace towards us. But the reason I bring this up is because in the case of Corinth, there were many who believed uh, things that were unbiblical, like eating meat sacrificed to idols. They believed this would literally defile them. Right? They didn't have the knowledge that, that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And so Paul writes to them and he says, look, look not everyone possesses this knowledge. You guys might, but these guys don't. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. There were many in Corinth, in other words, who, who believed that spirits literally lived inside of the meat and that by ingesting it, you yourself risked being defiled by the spirit that this, god had, that this meat had been sacrificed to. And Paul says, no, we know that's not going to happen. We, we know this isn't going to happen. It's not going to defile them physically. But then he goes, you know what will, though? What will defile the weaker Christian? You, if you practice this, you will defile their conscience. And what he's saying is, he says, if, if they see you, you know, all puffed up with knowledge, you know, you're so clever, eating at the local pagan temple... You know, maybe you've picked a seat outside the temple so people can see you as they're walking past on the street. If they see you as a Christian and they pluck up the courage to come and eat the meat, they go, oh, I guess maybe this is okay. But then they go home that evening and they go, oh, man, what have I done? I shouldn't have eaten that meat. What have I done? Like, I've, I've dishonored God. They genuinely believe that what they have done is wrong. And Paul says, you're to blame for that. You've sinned against them. In fact, if you look in verse 12, he goes so far as to say, you've sinned against Christ who dwells within them. Now, the amazing thing about this chapter is that while Paul clearly wants people to come to a knowledge of their freedom, that that's the trajectory he's going, he makes it painfully clear in verse 8 that depending on where you're at, doesn't depend, doesn't show you how close you are to God. So, so neither the one who eats the meat or the one who abstains is closer to God. And so the ones with knowledge need to humble themselves and realize this. Not to think, well, just because I know I'm free makes me a better Christian. Paul's saying, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Neither of them is, is more spiritual than the other. 
And this, in some respect, is kind of the whole debate that's being raised here in this chapter. You can always see one group going, well, I'm more godly because I'm free in Christ and I can do whatever I want. And the other group is kind of going, well, I'm closer to God because I wouldn't do anything that would ever be associated with a pagan god, ever. And so to some extent, there is this tightrope going on between freedom and conscience that there's been a battle within the church pretty much as long as we've been around. Our famous theologian, um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was very influential in the 19th century. Uh, this was a man who loved his cigars, really big fat ones. And one day he invited a theologian, D.L. Moody, to come and speak at an event that he had hosted. Moody accepts this invitation. He, he loved Spurgeon, he really did. That is until he spotted him smoking this big cigar. And so Moody sort of changed the course of his sermon and he took to the pulpit and he spoke of the evils of tobacco and why no one who calls himself a Christian could possibly dare ever smoke. And after Moody had finished, Spurgeon famously took the pulpit and he said, Mr. Moody, I'll put down my cigars when you put down your fork. You can probably guess the size of this guy he was speaking to. In some sense, he's going, there is sin in many different directions. But Spurgeon was highlighting the perils of using a personal standard other than the standard given by Jesus of judging someone as being saved or not, or closer to God or not. And in verse 8, Paul makes it very clear that, that neither one is more godly or spiritual than the other. It's a case of conscience. And so here, when it comes to food sacrificed to idol, Paul writes, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And this is what brings us then to the crux of the argument, as Paul immediately goes on to say this. He says, well, look, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights doesn't become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now, the story I said about Spurgeon, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think he could have been a lot more tactful with what he did and what he said, especially if this was a problem for Moody. Yes, we, we have genuine freedom in Christ, and we do need to make clear that the gospel is not Christ plus following some rule. It's not Christ plus abstaining from this or that thing. It's, it's not, this is true in the history of the church, right? They thought being a Christian was Christ plus don't go to the theatre. The theatre is evil. The theatre will corrupt you. The gospel is not Christ plus don't listen to rock and roll. These were actual issues in the history of the church. And today we might look back and kind of laugh at some of those things. I mean, who, who doesn't go to the movies? Who doesn't listen to, to heavy metal music sometimes? However, the point of the chapter is not to tell the weaker brother or sister for potentially adding to the gospel. He's not going, you weaker brother, you shouldn't be doing this and then adding to the gospel and corrupting us in that sense. No, the entire chapter... Paul is stacking everything towards the knowledgeable one. The one who is stronger in their conscience and is saying they must consider the weaker brother or sister in exercising their rights, not the other way around. Paul doesn't address the weaker brother with any requirements in this chapter. And so the question is, well then, as a church, 
here at KPC and everywhere we go, how do we do this? Now, as a parent, um, I know of my kids' irrational fears. I had irrational fears growing up uh, as well. Uh, my kids at this point in time, they have irrational fears of things in the wardrobe looking back at them. Now, I could sit there and talk to my kids and I could go, well, there's nothing in the wardrobe. I could open it and hop inside and show them there's nothing in there. I could explain to them how monsters aren't even real anyway. And I could just unlovingly refuse to shut the wardrobe door and tell them to get over it as they try and fall asleep with this knowledge that there are monsters in there. Or, as a parent, I could choose to love them. I could choose to love them by accommodating the fears of their minds and sliding the door shut anyway, as irrational as I think that is, knowing that one day, more than likely, they're going to grow out of this phase. You see, the key to building up the church is not knowledge flaunted with great bravado. Rather, it's like caring for the little ones. Paul asks the ones with knowledge to accommodate, to lay down their rights for the sake of building up the church. And Paul finishes with an example of this sacrifice in the way that I think should make us all stop and think because he concludes in verse 13 with this amazing statement. He says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is how seriously Paul takes unity with Christ. It's about laying down your rights for the sake of those around you. Now, it doesn't mean allowing someone to dictate what our salvation is, because the gospel isn't Jesus plus nothing. If someone says you can't be a Christian if you do X, Y, and Z, then to some degree you have to question, are they taking away from the all-sufficiency of Christ alone? But again, it's kind of a non-issue at the moment because this chapter isn't concerned with this just yet. The focus is on the stronger party, which means, for example, that, that if you have a brother or a sister who's he's prone, for example, to drinking too much or maybe has a family of alcoholism, then you will do whatever it takes to love and protect them, whatever it takes to build them up in Christ. And if this means giving up your rights to have a drink on a Friday afternoon after work, or if it means second-guessing if you were going to post that photo onto Facebook of you at the bar, then so be it. That was a very specific application, but I think the application here in some respect, it is very, very subjective. And so I think it's hard not to give a whole bunch of specific examples, but I think for us, this is where we need to talk about this after the service, is I think this can apply to every area of life to the things that we wear, to the types of movies and TV shows that we want to talk about in public and, and tell everyone, oh, you really need to watch this because it's just so great, to a whole range of things that I think are really worth considering. But what's really amazing when all is said and done about this is what's so amazing about giving up your rights for the sake of your brother or sister is that this is exactly what Jesus did for you. Jesus had every right to, to stay in heaven, to steer clear of humanity. His righteousness meant that he had every right to say, look, that cross, that's not for me. I'm not the criminal. 
I haven't broken any of God's laws. And yet in humility and love for the weaker party, which is everyone here, Jesus gave up his rights and he humbled himself to death on a cross. There's a very real sense in which laying down your rights for the sake of the weaker brother or sister is Christ-like. And I think that's something worth pondering this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who gave up his rights for us. We thank you for Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Lord, I pray as we think through the issues raised here in 1 Corinthians 8, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves, to lay down our rights for the sake of those around us, for the sake of building up your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.